0: so far we've covered the first three and a half years of the tribulation satan has called forth the antichrist in his own likeness and the antichrist has begun to build his empire the world is under the rule of 10 major kings although presumably there's an entire hierarchy of rulers under them Um, the antichrist started his rise to power through deception and intrigue but He's, at this point, begun to take the gloves off. hes We saw last week he has initiated a series of military campaigns and has conquered Egypt entirely. problem is he's meeting with some resistance, especially from Israel and Assyria, who allied themselves with Egypt. And that's, that's Assyria with a capital A, not to be confused with Syria with a capital S. Two, they're two different, two different things. But anyway... Even though he was able to defeat Egypt, it was apparently um, at some cost and Israel was on the other side uh, resisting the Antichrist. On top of this, there were we read about the two witnesses and those witnesses are in Jerusalem preaching the gospel to the world. And it's not like the Antichrist can ignore them because they have definitely captured the whole world's attention. They have called down fire they've called down plagues they've caused drought they can kill their enemies with fire from their mouths there and there is nothing the antichrist seems to be able to do about this and that's because they are being supernaturally protected for this first three and a half years on top of that not only would the antichrist like to utterly destroy these two witnesses in Jerusalem he'd, he would like to conquer Israel and he has not been able to do that either because Israel also has been protected during the first three and a half years. When we studied Daniel 11 we learned about the specific military campaigns of the antichrist and, and we read some of those last week but it's also interesting to note that Daniel eleven forty one tells us that when the Antichrist invades the Holy Land, many countries will fall, but he's unable to conquer Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon. And when we studied Daniel, we looked at a map, and we saw that those ancient regions are in what we call today Jordan, the modern nation kingdom of Jordan. The fact that the Antichrist could not conquer what we now know as Jordan has made some people believe that the place of refuge that the Lord God provides for Israel during the first three and a half years may well be Jordan. It's it's right there next to them. It would be easy to get to, and perhaps when when they flee to the wilderness, perhaps that's where they go during that that first three and a half years. Uh, there's uh, there's another prophecy in Micah Micah chapter two, uh, verse twelve and thirteen. It says, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. Uh, Meaning there will be a lot of people there, wherever it is that the Lord gathers this remnant. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. So their king goes on before them, and the Lord at their head. Now the reason I pulled this out is because of the phrase that that the Lord is going to pull the remnant of Israel together like sheep in the fold. The Hebrew word for the fold here is the word Basra. That the word the name Basra is has a meaning of sheepfold, and because of this, a lot of Interpreters, You will find this is a popular theory. Uh, a lot of interpreters believe this passage should actually read, I will put them together like sheep in Basra. On top of that, there actually happens to be a place named Basra in Edom, which is now in the land of Jordan. There's, there's really two places. One is a little village called Busera, and um, it doesn't have any other particular characteristics that would you know make you think that it's any place special but the other place also in edom is named butsera another variation on the on the name basra and it is very near the modern town of petra which happens to mean the rock by coincidence the second location is this 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 basra the one near petra is actually shaped naturally like a giant sheepfold it's a town inside of a large circle of cliffs, only accessible by a narrow opening. The mountainous topography of the place of refuge is mentioned in Scripture, um, particularly in Isaiah. There, there is a chapter in Isaiah, it's chapter 33, that is Completely about the end times, it goes through the it mentions the Antichrist breaking the covenant, it mentions the terror of Israel, talks about the refuge the Lord will provide, and ultimately the about the salvation of Jerusalem and its establishment in peace i've put it in your uh, scripture uh, references for today, and, and we 're not going to read the whole chapter, just some excerpts from it so that so that you can see. How the place of refuge is described in this particular passage it, isaiah thirty three starts out addressing presumably the Antichrist. It says, "Woe to you, O destroyer, while you were not destroyed, and he who is treacherous while others did not deal treacherously with him, and it goes on to to the appeal by um, Israel, where they say, O oh Lord, be gracious to us, we have waited for you' Be our strength every morning, our salvation in time of distress. At the sound of the tumult, peoples flee. At the lifting up of yourself, nations disperse. And then it goes on to talk some more about the desolation that that is caused by the Antichrist and the breaking of the covenant. Listen to what it says in verse 8. The highways are desolate. The traveler has ceased. He has broken the covenant. He has despised the cities. He has no regard for man. The land mourns and pines away. And then it goes on to talk about the Lord rising up to, in, in Israel's defense. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will be lifted up. You, presumably speaking to the Antichrist, you have conceived chaff. You will be. Give birth to stubble. My breath will consume you like fire. The people will be burned to lime, cut like thorns which are burned in the fire. You who are far away, hear what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? And then it goes on to explain that that it is the righteous... Who can live with the holiness of the Lord. And, and in verse 16 it says, the righteous will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be impregnable rock. His bread will be given him and his water will be sure. This is taken to be a description of the refuge that God provides Israel. And it then goes on in verses 17 through 24 to talk about how Israel will lift up her eyes, see the king in his beauty. You will no longer see a fierce people, a people of unintelligible speech, which no one comprehends, of a stammering tongue, which no one understands. Look upon Zion. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an undisturbed habitation. No resident will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Because of this, many people believe that Basra near Petra is the location God will prepare for Israel in the wilderness. I personally don't think we can really tell from these passages. I I don't see this as definitive. I do know from other prophecies in scripture that the Lord will utterly destroy Edom and Basra in particular in the day of the Lord. So something's definitely going to happen there. And and whether um, Israel is taken there as a refuge first and then at the end of the tribulation, after, after Israel is, is brought back to Jerusalem, it, the Lord comes and punishes and destroys Edom and Basra. You know, I don't know exactly how this timing is going to work out, but I do know from scripture, uh, especially in Isaiah 34 and Jeremiah 49, there is prophecy specifically directed at Edom and Basra, uh, saying that it is to be destroyed as thoroughly and permanently as Sodom and Gomorrah. So that's just an aside. You just need to be aware that that's a very popular theory. I really don't think we can tell for sure what kind of refuge the Lord provides Israel or where it will be. At any rate, at the end of the first three and a half years, the Antichrist does finally achieve his goal of world domination. where we we want to pick the story up in in Revelation thirteen, And start with a look at the spiritual reality and then move over to how that might look in the physical world. We read the first couple of verses last week. Um, Let's start there. It says, And the dragon, who we know to be Satan, stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his head were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Now last week we decided that the sea that this beast came from probably meant the nations of the world, the Gentile nations, since that's how that symbol was used and interpreted in the book of Daniel. But you know, we messed up there. We need to take a closer look because... One of the principles of interpreting biblical prophecy is that first you look within the context, immediate context of the scripture, of the prophecy itself. And then if you do not find the interpretation there, then you look elsewhere in scripture to see how that symbol might be used. In this case, there's actually two, maybe even three places in Revelation where the sea that that beast comes out of is specifically interpreted. The, the two, the two places that I'm talking about in particular are Revelation 11 verse 7 and Revelation 17 verse 8. Now, both of these verses tell about some of the other activities of the, of the beast, of the Antichrist, and that's why we haven't read them yet, but they also specifically say that the beast came out of the abyss. Which means that the sea is equal to the abyss. That the sea is symbolic of the abyss. Do you remember the abyss? We studied that in an earlier lesson. It, it is what appears to be probably the lowest level of Hades. But it certainly, we know for sure, it is a holding place for evil spirits. For unclean spirits. And it is a place of torment from for them right now. We also know that it's a temporary place just like Hades and will ultimately in the end in eternity it will be uh, replaced by the second death, the lake of fire. But for right now there are evil spirits being, that are bound and held in the abyss. There's a, there's a story you'll, uh, that you'll probably remember uh, out of Mark 5 and it's also told again in Luke 8 that is the story of a demon-possessed man. Now, this poor man had so many demons in him that if they had had a straitjacket back then, they would have put this man in it to keep him from harming himself. As it was, they didn't have anything quite as humane as a straitjacket, if you can call that humane. They had to put the poor guy in chains to keep him from from destroying and injuring himself. Well, when Jesus came near this demon-possessed man... The evil spirits and demons inside of him screamed out and begged Jesus not to cast them out into the abyss. And Jesus actually had pity on those spirits and, and allowed them to be cast out. He cast them out, but he cast them into a nearby herd of pigs. Do you recognize the story? the pigs went immediately immediately went mad and do you remember what they did they rushed to the sea and were drowned so it's it's really no coincidence that the beast comes out of the sea from a spiritual point of view and that in this case the sea is symbolic of the abyss and that implies that although the antichrist is a man in his form you know he's he's a, he's a human man He is also filled completely with a spirit that is unclean and thoroughly evil. Look at Revelation 17 verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not, and will come. Notice that the this says that the beast existed before John's time, that it currently does not exist during John's time, and that in the end times it will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. Compare this to Second Thessalonians two, um, verses three through eight. We've read this passage about the antichrist uh where where paul is talking about the antichrist many times but but we need to focus on the spirit that it says will will inhabit the antichrist let's read these verses together let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come that's the end of time unless the apostasy comes first And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. And, And here's the important part. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. This tells us definitively that it is the evil spirit of lawlessness that will inhabit the antichrist and that this spirit existed prior to the time of john but during john's lifetime was being restrained that that spirit of lawlessness is currently being restrained in the abyss where else would it be restrained that's where evil spirits are restrained that it's currently that it existed it's being restrained in the abyss and it's going to come forth at the end time when the antichrist receives his power So now, let's look at the ten kings. We know the ten horns are ten kings, and we did that last week. Go back to Revelation 13, and let's look at the piece that we didn't look at last week, which is the seven heads. We never talked about what those seven heads were. In order to know a little more about the seven heads, keep flipping forward in Revelation to chapter 17, verse 10. And I'm just going to really skip around in this verse Because it talks about a bunch of other stuff that we haven't got to yet. And I'm just going to read the pieces that relate to identifying the seven heads. Starting in verse 10. And they, the seven heads, are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. And the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast is himself also an eighth head. And is one of the seven heads. And he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for, un, for one hour. Now, that's convoluted language. But what it said was the heads are kings who, obviously, to be a king, you have to rule over a kingdom, right? They represent a series of kings over time. Those ten horns are ten kings that exist concurrently at the end. The seven heads are seven kings and kingdoms that have existed over time. And we know that because it says five of them have already come and gone. One of them exists now, John, during your lifetime. And one of them is going to come. So the key to understanding this is going back to one of our principles of interpreting prophecy. And that is to remember that prophecy is God's perspective being told... To his chosen people Israel. To interpret prophecy. You must remember that. So many people. Take it out of that context. And end up way off in left field somewhere. Okay. But think about. The kingdoms. That have had. Dominion over Israel. What kingdom had dominion over Israel. At the time of John. Roman Empire. Exactly right. Now, because five have gone, one is, we know that the Roman Empire is number six. Jot down one through seven on your, on your, somewhere on a piece of paper so you can keep track of this. Okay? One through seven. And, and you, all know, you all know these answers. <laughs> You're going to get a hundred on this quiz. Number six is Rome. Right? Because that's the one who is. Let's skip back up to the top. When... When was Israel formed as a nation? Not when it was promised. Remember, it was promised to Abraham a long time before they ever actually existed. When did they come into existence as a nation, as an entity? Do you, do you remember? Seven, 42, do, not the date. Where were they? Where were they? They were slaves. They were slaves when they were formed as a nation. You got it. What is it? Egypt. They what happened was was Abraham's family was just a little tribe of family, right? Then the then Joseph got sold into slavery to Egypt, right? They're still a relatively small family. It's just the brothers right now. After Joseph died, that line he brought remember he brought all his brothers and his father, his whole family to Egypt during his lifetime. Israel died. The person Jacob died there. Joseph died there. His son. They had sons, and they had sons, and they had sons, and eventually they became what is called in scripture bone-crunchingly strong, to the point that they frightened their power frightened the pharaoh. That was when Israel became a nation because Moses came. God stood up to deliver His people, and He said, "You are Mine." And here's how you know you are mine. And then, of course, you know the story of the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the Passover, you know, the giving to them of the covenant, the giving to them of the law. What is what is nation number one on the list? Egypt. Now, after they came out of Egypt and they came into the promised land, Israel began worshiping idols. And they began to have internal strife. Part of it caused by the Lord on purpose because they were having, you know, worshiping idols. But they ultimately devolved into civil war and they broke up into two pieces. And nine and a half tribes became the northern tribes and they called themselves Israel. They retained that name. Two and a half tribes lived in the south, okay, and they retained the name of Judah. Together, they're the all. 12 or 14 tribes of of Israel. But in the north, they were Israel. In the south, they were Judah. And and the way I I keep that straight in my head is I think of the actual letter I as being pointing straight up and of the actual letter J as hooking down. That's how I remember north from south. But, But they split up. And after about 250 years of this, Israel, the northern kingdom, was conquered. They were conquered by Assyria. That's kingdom number two, Assyria with an A. Judah rocked along for about another, a little over another hundred years, a little bit more. They were ultimately taken over by, you know, who? King Nebuchadnezzar, that's right. So Babylonia is number three. Who conquered Babylon? And took over after that. Who, who took over the Holy Land after that? Do you remember from Daniel? It was the Medes and the Persians. It was the Persian Empire. They're the next one. Who took over the Persians? Who conquered the Persians? You know Bill. Tell me. The Greeks. The Greeks. Alexander the Great. Who conquered the Greeks? Rome. Rome. Did, was, Bible, was the Bible accurate? Yes. It came out exactly Right, that's exactly what that means. So now we are to the, time, the kingdom that will come, which is kingdom number seven, the one that has not yet come, and when it does come, it will remain for a little while. The, great, the verse in Revelation that says it, the seventh one will remain for a little while, the Greek literally means a brief or puny season. And from our studies, if that seventh kingdom is the one with the ten world You know, 10 world powers, we know they only reign with the Antichrist for this last, you know, seven years or so, right? So, three and a half years probably because the Antichrist is going to take over. The other thing that's that's helpful is there's a very strange part of that passage that says the beast is an eighth and yet one of the seven. Well, we've already studied that, and we know how that could be, because we looked and determined that most likely the Antichrist was, did work for one of those seven, rose up, and became his own king, right? So he is of the seven, and yet an eighth king all at the same time. That's my interpretation. That's what I see based on scripture. But there's one thing, and I think I've got it in your handout. There's a verse or a story in Daniel 10... Verses 12 and 13. Because I don't want you to forget that when we're looking at prophecy like this, it's talking about the spiritual reality. God sees nations as having spiritual kings, spiritual rulers. Those are the real ones. Under the spiritual rulers, there may be a whole series of physical earthly kings who live and die in that kingdom. God saw the Persian Empire... As a single kingdom, right? And with a single king, the king he sees is the the spiritual king. Even though there were many kings within the Persian Empire from an earthly point of view. Look at Daniel 10. Then he said to me, this is an angel talking to Daniel. Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this mystery and on humbling yourself before your God... Your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. Only problem was it had taken him three weeks to get there. Remember that? He said, and this is his explanation for why this angel took three weeks to answer Daniel's prayer. He said, the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, who we know to be the prince over Israel, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Okay, that is... That's the kind of king we're talking about here. Okay, We're talking about the spiritual king. So now let's go back to Revelation 13.3 and pick the story up. I saw one of the heads of the beast, one of these seven heads, as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. The phrase that is is translated lots of different ways in different translations of the Bible. But the phrase, as if it had been slain, is exactly the same Greek that was used to describe the Lamb of God. Who we already read in Revelation 5, 6, John saw in heaven as if it had been slain it and resurrected it is it is a term that implies resurrection okay it is an idiom according to dr frukenbaum it's a it's a idiom that means died and resurrected so if you i think i put in your scripture references the actual Greek where you could see it. The Revelation 5, 6 that I'm talking about says, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And I've actually printed the Greek here, the Greek phrase, From Revelation 13, where it's talking about the Antichrist, and from Revelation 5, where it's talking about Jesus, and you can see it's exactly the same word. There's one letter difference, different. It's the next to last letter at the end of the phrase. That's just the verb conjugation. Okay? It's the same verb. It's just being conjugated with a different, and with a different noun. That verb is pronounced asphagmenon, and it means to butcher, to slaughter, to kill, slay, or wound. Okay, And in this context, it's saying this beast has been slaughtered and has been resurrected. His fatal wound was healed. That's exactly what it says there in Revelation. So now we've got to figure out which head was it. That thing had seven heads, right? And you just wrote down what those seven heads represented. Now we've got to figure out from Scripture which head was it that was resurrected. Our choices are either it's one of the preceding kings, kingdoms, right, kings and its kingdom, one of those six that came before, or it's the Antichrist in his kingdom. Let's keep reading in Revelation 13. I saw one of the heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? Now, that makes it clear that at least in the eyes of the world at that time, the beast that they saw as being slain and resurrected was the Antichrist. That's the one they are understanding was slain and resurrected. That's the one they worship, because it was slain and resurrected. And... We should continue. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. An authority to act for 42 months was given to him. That's three and a half years. So the Antichrist gets authority for three and a half years. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is those who dwell in heaven. It was also given him to make war with the saints to overcome them. And to overcome authority and to have authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who has been slain. And that who has been slain is that same word that was just used in this passage. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity to captivity he goes if anyone kills with the sword with the sword he must be killed here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints then i saw another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and he spoke as a dragon now i didn't even know lamb's had horns I had to get on the internet to make sure lambs had horns. They do. There are whole breeds that have horns. And as it so happens, the one that I happened to look up turned out to be the Jacob breed. (laughs) Named after the sheep that Jacob passed under the rod, the the black and white spotted sheep. But they do have little, little horns. So this beast is a second beast, comes out of the earth, okay, which clearly is the people, okay. So he's not coming up out of the abyss, apparently. It doesn't say see there. It uses a little bit different imagery. He has two horns like a lamb. And he spoke as a dragon, like, like Satan. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. This is another reference where the fatal wound is associated with the beast himself, whom we know to be the Antichrist. This second beast, who is called the later in Revelation called the false prophet, and that's what I'm going to call him just to distinguish him from the Antichrist. Okay, The false prophet performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs. Which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. Another reference, okay, this time it tells us that it was a sword wound, which would, since this is a spirit, spiritual view, means presumably a military wound of some sort, right? Not necessarily a sword, but a military wound, a wound of violence. Now, also gave us some information that the world is going to make a statue of the beast that was killed and resurrected, right? Now, it would be pretty tough, in my estimation, to make a statue of the Roman Empire. Okay? I think that pretty conclusively narrows it down (laughs) to being a... Statue of the Antichrist, and therefore he must be the one who is resurrected. Now, that is not a popular view or interpretation. I have shown you why I think that, why I think it's pretty much incontrovertible. But you will find prevalent in the Protestant denomination that the Roman Empire is what's going to get resurrected. And come back to life as the empire of the Antichrist. You don't think that he could be the leader of the Roman Empire? He could certainly be the leader of the Roman Empire. but Sorry, both, basically both It could, but my interpretation from the other scripture in Daniel is that it's more likely that he's coming out of Syria. It could both be, but generally people who think it's the Roman Empire don't think the Antichrist himself is resurrected. They have a theological problem with that. okay? Because it says the false prophet is the one who breathes life into the beast. Look at verse 15. And it was given to the false prophet to give breath to the image of the beast. So that the image of the beast would even speak. And cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. People wiggle all over the place with this one. Do not like that at all, because it sounds like the devil, through the false prophet, is giving life, doesn't it? Well, that's why I gave you a handout on this one. Let's look at what this says. Look at your handout, Soul, Spirit, and Life. The false prophet gives breath to the statue of the Antichrist. The Greek word there, and the little gray box unfortunately didn't print very well, shows the number 4151. That's the actual number of the Greek word. And I've put the Strong's definition here for you. 4151 is the word pneuma, from which we get things like pneumonia, breathing, okay? Pneuma means breath, literally. And you can see from the, from the description it's a current of air, breath, blast, breeze, or if it's used symbolically, it means spirit, as in human or rational soul, vital principle, mental, mental ability. Uh, it can be superhuman, an angel, divine, Christ spirit, Holy Spirit, ghost, life spirit. Okay, see what that means? Now, there are other Greek words that could have been used. In English, we only have one word for life. It's life. You're alive. Okay, when, when you have spirit, you're alive or you have life. Well, in Greek, they have different words. One of the words is, is G5590, which is where we get our word psyche. It's psuche, psuche. Okay. It's, it's where we get psyche from. It's usually translated Soul. There is also um, G2222, which is kind of halfway through this little little definition here, that is translated life, as in he who seeks to save his life will lose it. Okay. So in Greek, we have three variations of what we only have one word for in, in English. They have the word spirit. They have the word life. And they have the word, basically, soul. Okay. Let's... I, I wanted to show you how differently they are used. So I gave you a couple of scripture references from each one. For example, the one, 5590, the one that, that we use the, the word psyche for, that's translated soul. It's used in, in Matthew 26:38. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. This was the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Matthew 16.26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Okay, got the flavor of that one? Let's move to life, 22.22. In Matthew 7.14, the gate is small, the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Matthew 19.17, and he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. So that, that's life as we use the word life. Okay. And then let's look at some of the verses where this word spirit is used, G4151. This is the same word that's used in the passage about the false prophet. Matthew 3.11. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals he will baptize you with the holy spirit and with fire same word spirit different word holy but same word spirit matthew 8:16 when evening came they brought to him many who were demon possessed and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill matthew 27:50 and jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit now let's reread Revelation 13:15, and it was given to the false prophet to give spirit to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. It sounds to me like he gave real spirit, life to this beast, or to the, not to the beast to the. Um, Idle to the statue. Okay. Now that brings us up against. Some things that are hard for people to swallow. Like I thought God was the source of all power and all life. Well you know stop and think for a second. God is the source of all power. And life. God created Satan. God gives power. To his beings and when his beings choose to corrupt that power he doesn't take the gift away okay he allows us free will and we know from lots of places in scripture that god uses evil men and the spirits that inhabit them for his purpose one that comes immediately to mind is the pharaoh right There's lots and lots of that. And in fact, we're reading all about it. We're reading about the Antichrist, the false prophet, the ten kings, their armies, the nations of the earth. All of these that are wicked are being used as God's instruments in the end times so don't we are being told these prophecies, so it won't bother us, so our faith will not be shaken when we see the miracles that we have historically associated only with God. We have to know how it works, so we aren't led astray okay there's a couple of more I put some more uh scripture references in your um, scripture. Preference handout. I didn't write them all out, but there's several other resurrections from the dead other than the ones Jesus did in scripture. There's resurrections by Elijah. There's resurrections by Peter and Paul. There's a resurrection by Elisha, Elijah and Elisha. And there's even one young man who got resurrected just because he happened to get buried in Elisha's tomb. You know, you know. <laughs> so, so it's pretty good if you can manage that one. So it's 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 not like God has to stand there and breathe life into something, okay? This this is a gift that God does give to his created beings for his purpose. It's it's something for thought. Now the next question is, well, why? You know, why does God let the false prophet do these great miracles, and including the giving of life? Go back to that same passage in Second Thessalonians. I think I've got it in your scripture references. Second Thessalonians 2, verses 8 through 12. This is when the lawless one, the Antichrist, is, is revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not love the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so they will believe what is false in order that they may all be judged who did not believe in truth but took pleasure in wickedness. There's your why. God very rarely tells us why. But there's a why right there. <coughs> Go back to, Reve- to the story. So this whole passage in Second Thessalonians is talking about the miracles that accompany the Antichrist. And reassuring us that God is in control even when we see these things happening. Revelation 13 verse 15. Now it was given to him the false prophet to give breath to the image of the beast so the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed and he causes all the small and the great this is everyone and he's emphasizing everyone the rich and the poor free men and slaves this is the whole world the antichrist is now dominant he is the world king and the false prophet acting on his behalf causes all to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. And here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man. His number is 666. Now, in years past, people had... A hard time understanding how in the world the false prophet could mark every single person in the world. Well, nowadays, it's like, duh, everybody gets a microchip down at the post office. You know, it's it's like we can really see how this could happen, right? Used to, they thought maybe you had to go get a tattoo, but then how could you find everybody? Well, we're getting there pretty quickly, aren't we? Now, to the number, men will either have the name of the Antichrist on their right hand or their forehead, or his number, which is told here to be 666. It does not say what language this number is based on. For example, in English, the name John is John. In Spanish, it's Juan. In Greek, it's Johan. Since we are studying prophecy, biblical prophecy, what language would we assume? We would assume it's the language of Israel because prophecy is to Israel. Therefore, we would, could probably pretty safely assume the language this number is based on is Hebrew. Okay. That's a principle of interpretation. Could, I could be wrong, but I think that's a pretty solid ground there. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet in order. And they have A, B, C, D, E, F, G, just like we do. Okay? Different, different ones, but they're, they have an order. Just like we have our letters in order. And the way they number, their, each letter is assigned a number. And, the, and the, the, they're numbered 1 through 9. Then 10, 20, 30. They jump by tens up to 100. And then it goes 100, 200, 300, 400. Now, you can stop there. That's 22. Some people also number the five Hebrew letters that are called Finals. They have a special deal in their language where if, if it's the last letter of a word, it gets a special, like an, an M or an N. If it's the last letter in the word, it has a special symbol. Okay, And so some people number those five finals so they don't stop at 400. They go all the way up to 900 in their numbering of the Hebrew alphabet. So, so for example, in um, Hebrew, John is spelled YN. Hebrew doesn't use, and the numbers are not applied to vowels. Hebrew does use vowels, but it's, it's, the numbers are applied to consonants only. Okay? So the, the consonants in John's name are basically J and N. And, and the J is a Y, it's called a Yud in Hebrew, and its value is 10. John's second and only other consonant is the N, the Nun, and its number is 50. You add those up. The numerical value of John, of the name John, is 60. You see how that works? Now, if you're one of those who thinks you ought to take that final in in John and use the special final for it, then you're going to say that that final nun is 700 it's, would be its number. Therefore, you would say John has a name that's worth 710 points. So either you got 60 or you got 710. You can see... How difficult it would be to narrow down what the name of the Antichrist could be. It could be any combination of these consonants, and then you've got the finals thrown in there to confuse it all. So, it's impossible to know in advance what the name of the Antichrist will be. I put a, um, a scripture reference, no I put a website reference in your, um, scripture handout if you're interested in doing some more work on the web with numerology and especially with Greek and Hebrew numerology. I just really don't recommend doing a lot with that because for one thing trying to divine Prophecy using number systems, and you see a lot of that nowadays, especially with things like the Da Vinci Code and and those people who do searching through the Bible and finding Saddam Hussein's name in there and patterns and stuff. That's numerology. That kind of thing is too close to divination. That's what Balaam did. That is trying to get to the truth like astrology get to a spiritual truth that does exist through a mechanical means that is not of the holy spirit you can get there you can find those truths that's why the tower of babel was torn down you know that's why god sent confusion to the men in the tower of babel they were getting there to their goal but they were not getting there through the holy spirit they were getting there through through rebellion so i really resist Trying to figure the God's Word out mechanically through numerology. It's, for one thing, it's risky, it's faulty. I don't think it's of the Lord. and you're far better off being able to recognize the Antichrist from the Holy Spirit from what prophecy has told you about him. okay? At that point that you've recognized them, you, you will also be able to tell that His name equates to 666. okay? Just don't try to identify him from that point. Okay, so now that tells us what the spiritual reality is. It gives us quite a bit of information about the earthly events surrounding the worship of the Antichrist and his statue. But it didn't tell us much about the sequence of events leading up to that point. Okay, go back to Daniel 11.31. This is, this is back in Daniel where he's talking about the military campaigns of the Antichrist. He's already conquered Egypt and he's returned to his own land in the north with great wealth. And all this happens during the first three and a half years. Okay? However, the second time the Antichrist tries to invade Egypt, he's rebuffed by ships from Cyprus and he is furious. And he vents his anger and frustration on Israel. And that's where we want to pick it up. In Daniel 11.31. Forces from the Antichrist will arise. Desecrate the sanctuary fortress. That's Jerusalem. And do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. We know that that marks. From our previous studies. That marks the beginning of the great tribulation. The exact midpoint of the seven years. And the beginning of the final three and a half years. During this final three and a half years. The Antichrist is allowed to exercise his full satanic authority. Which is marked by blasphemy against God. And that starts with the setting up of the abomination of desolation. Now the specific blasphemy that the Antichrist utters. Is that he claims he is the Messiah. And that Jesus was a fake. In fact, the Antichrist will be the last in a long line of Antichrists, with a small a, who make the same claim. Jesus warned us of this. Look at Matthew 24, 4-5. Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. It doesn't say just one comes, says many do this. 1 John 2, verse 18 and 22. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know it is the last hour. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Even Daniel 7.25, Daniel's vision he will speak out against the Most High. That's, he's talking about the Antichrist there. And then in Daniel 11.36. When it talks about his earthly military campaigns. Then the king will do as he pleases. And he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. And will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. He sets up. The abomination of desolation, and he makes himself God in God's temple. And that is also foretold in that same passage in 2 Thessalonians 2 that we've been looking at all class. It actually says, Do not let no one in verse, uh, let's see, 3 and 4, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, the end will not come, unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. I think that's the abomination that causes desolation right there. I think that happens. Now, for the whole world to swallow this, I think he had to have already been killed and resurrected by that, at that point. Probably immediately preceding that. Probably during that siege on Jerusalem. During the attack on Jerusalem. From a timing point of view, that's the only thing that really makes sense. Because at this point, the world is willing to worship him. And you know, another reason is because when he comes into his fullness of power, which I think happens when he's resurrected, okay, there at the midpoint, he is able to do something that... No one in the world, including him, has ever been able to do. Remember those two witnesses that we left in Jerusalem proclaiming the gospel to the whole world? And they, the Antichrist couldn't touch them for the first three and a half years. They were raining down fire and plagues and disease, you know, drought, everything. But at this point, the Antichrist, enters Jerusalem, it says the beast out of the abyss, this is the other verse that, we were, that I told you said he was out of the abyss, enters Jerusalem and kills the two witnesses. You see, their job was done. And it did not matter that they were the two witnesses who stood in the very presence of the throne of God. They still are going to get killed. They are going to suffer. Because what's important is God's eternal plan. Those two witnesses have eternal lives. What's important is their spirit. Their bodies are not important. It reminds me of a story of a Roman soldier who was heading down a path. And his guide said, if you go down that path, you will be killed. And the soldier said to him, it is important that I go. It is not important that I live that should be our motto as christians and that's what happens to these two witnesses revelation 11:7 when they have finished their testimony the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city which mystically is called sodom in egypt Where also their Lord was crucified. So that's Jerusalem. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations. Who have been tormented by them. Will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days. And will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another. Because those two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Those prophets were bringing the gospel to the wicked. And the wicked saw it as torment. They didn't see it as warning signs. They saw it as torment. The Antichrist, when he enters Jerusalem in anger, his first targets are going to be those two witnesses. Combine this with the Antichrist's own resurrection and the miracles that the false prophet is able to do. And you can see why the world is deceived and why many, 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 Christians are deceived because they are Christian in name only are not being guided by the Holy Spirit. It's just you've got to study and you've got to understand and you have to know that the Holy Spirit needs to dwell inside of you and be a plumb line against which you can judge any situation, including something as startling as, as this. The world only sees the discomfort that these witnesses have caused. And when the and when the witnesses are killed the world declares a new Christmas, the coronation of the Antichrist as God. But God has something else to say. Revelation 11:11. 11, 11. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. The two witnesses are resurrected after laying three and a half days with you can picture. The Middle Eastern yelling and screaming and beating on him and stabbing him and, you know, what we've seen on our TVs pictures of what this is going to look like. After three and a half days, they're resurrected and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Then they went up to heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in that earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So at this point, perhaps the world begins to have second thoughts about their Antichrist God. But it's too late. He has come into the fullness of his power.